Pilots, what's the scariest stuff you've seen while flying? My dad told me a story from a few years ago that happened while flying a 737 somewhere in Nevada I think on the way back to Toronto. It was later in the evening, so you couldn't see too much, but all of a sudden to the left of the plane my dad saw a really bright ball of light I guess you could say, moving really fast across the sky. My dad and his co-pilot had no clue what it was, and they could hear other pilots nearby calling it in over the radio and asking what it was. Eventually it flew past and disappeared into the distance. A few days later my dad found out that what he saw was a missile launched by a USN submarine. I wonder how many passengers thought they saw UFO lol. I wonder how many passengers thought they saw UFO lol. Well, if they couldn't identify the object but saw it was flying, then they would be right. A skydiver about 20 yards off my wing was flying a 172 into an uncontrolled field that I've flown into 100 times before, not knowing that after a 5 year ban and skydiving there, they were allowing it on a case by case request. While flying in, calling my position, I hear skydiver in the air. My first thought was I hope they aren't this direction and then there he was. I had this image of him going through my prop. After that thought oh god please don't let me kill this guy then I turned to WTF just happened and how did the pilot not call this out better. He flew off completely. Come to find out the pilot was flying his friend to skydive to his local field then departed to his home airport where they came from. I never did find the guy. Weird, I just posted this from the other side of the coin. Not the same incident though unless you were the one flying over Flagler airport in Florida back then. It had been an active drop zone for years though so I'm sure you were somewhere else. Smoke in the cockpit when I landed. Thankfully it was when I landed. Had to push the airplane. Small Cessna. Off the runway. Almost had two mid-air collisions. One due to a new pilot not being where he should be. Another due to control telling me an aircraft was at me 11 o'clock when really it was at me 2 o'clock. And the coolest was a beta that burned up directly in front of me. Same altitude. Straight ahead. I have no idea how far away it was. But it was bright. And so pretty. Went through a spectrum of colors as it burned. Not a pilot. But my dad is a former one. He once told me about how he almost crashed his Cessna because he hit some geese. He was actually preparing for a landing approach when he hit geese flying in a patch of fog. Windshield was completely shattered and he and his passenger were covered in blood and feathers. They landed safely, but my dad was pretty scarred from that. He didn't quit flying because of that, but bird strikes remained a constant fear of his. Geese are large birds and they did significant damage to that little plane. Considering what they can do to larger planes, see, that incident in 2009 that involved landing in the Hudson, I shudder to think what they could do to a smaller craft. Not a pilot but I was in the bathroom when the pilot came over the radio with a quick announcement that we were about to have turbulence and to buckle up. Everyone sat down, including the stewardesses and buckled up. Everyone but me who was in the process of taking a massive crap, the kind of crap you don't want to have during turbulence. Now I've been in turbulence. It's rough. This was something else. I somehow, by all that was mighty, finished my crap and completed the post crap paperwork darts and flushed. Didn't wanna chance it. When the turbulence hit, to say I hit everything is an understatement. I bounced off the ceiling, hit the floor, back up, face to the toilet. It was heck and I just kept my face covered and I protected my head as best I could. After a bit of luck, 
I managed to get myself wedged under the toilet and I stayed there till the bumpy ride ended. I left the bathroom to some laughter and a lot of concern. See for them in their seats it was fine until they heard screaming in the bathroom and loud crashing noises followed by dread silence. They all thought I died. Haha. <laughs> I was on one flight where they announced anyone with hot drinks. Please pour them out on the floor. Everyone else, cover your beverages with your hand. My sibling asked our great uncle this once. He was a commercial pilot for 30 years. Hey uncle Mike, what's the weirdest thing you saw while flying a plane? God, he went to take a nap right after that. Dang, he literally refused to elaborate any further hug. Navy carrier pilot here. My story is more about what I couldn't see. I joined a squadron on deployment near Guam for a couple months one time. It had been about 6 months since I had landed on a carrier. So I had to do a few day and night passes to get current again. My first night with them. The plan was for me to get two traps. We would come down as the first plane in the recovery. Launch again. And come back in as the last plane in the recovery. Nothing crazy. We do it all the time to keep both pilots current. The only thing different is I would fly both passes. This night was overcast, so no moonlight made it though to the surface of the ocean, making it very dark when you descend through the clouds. It's also the middle of the ocean. It is so dark that you can't tell where the water ends and the sky starts. Not that it mattered though because we were still in the clouds down at 1200 feet. As we are coming down first in the conga line of aircraft on 2 minute intervals, we hear paddles, the pilots on the back of the ship who help guide you down, say 99. The deck is moving. This means that the flight deck is pitching, rolling, and or heaving with the ship's motion more than it usually does. This happens occasionally, and it's always a bit sketchy, but that's what paddles is there for. Anyway, as we are flying our needles down toward the ship, we pass 400 featuring at about 1 mile and we're still in the clouds in the dark. We get to the normal handoff point between the approach controller and paddles at 3 stroke 4 mile. Approach says show you on and on. 3 stroke 4 mile, call the ball, this is the point where we would look outside and confirm that we see the lights on the ship that guide you in on the correct glide slope, in carrier aviation, if you can't see the ball or you don't know where you are on glide slope for some reason, you say Clara, meaning clarify my position, at least that's what I always assumed it stood for, and paddles will step in on the radio and give you some help, well in this case, we can't even see the ship, so we respond with Clara's ship. Paddles comes back with 601, taxi light on, that means they can't see us either and they need us to turn the taxi light on so they know where we are. We turn the taxi light on, and Paddles says Paddles contact and continues to talk us down towards the deck. We're probably passing though 150 featuring here. Eventually, we finally break out and about 3-5 seconds later, we hit the deck and come to a stop. It was raining so hard we could barely see the taxi director on the deck. They taxi us to the bow catapults and we shoot off into the darkness to do it again lol. Luckily, the weather cleared a bit and the deck steadied a bit for the second pass. That still remains the craziest thing I have done in an airplane. TLDR. Night. IMC Belomans. Pitching deck carrier landing on my night ray quell flight. Frankly, I don't know how you do this. Take off land on carriers in all weather. I think some people must be wired for this kind of work. To me, it's terrifying to even watch it. Great description, though. Easy to follow and imagine. Stay safe out there. 
flying a Cessna 172 with my instructor out toward Blythe on the way to San Diego hangar when a sandstorm blew up underneath us. I swear the sand was so close it was causing the landing gear tires to spin. This was on a three-leg check flight we had landed at Big Bear, California for fuel and a hot low-pressure system moved in pretty quick. It was moving and as we were getting there, like really really hot 120 degrees or so and the air was already really thin. A kid in his solo was taking off and he got her up off the end of the runway and he just fell out of the sky and crashed. Air was too thin because of the heat and he ran out of runway because he couldn't get up to speed and just pulled up instead of listening to tower and aborting. Crashed and died. I had a near miss with a twin engine that was flying at the wrong altitude in the opposite direction. Imagine oncoming traffic one lane over. It was that close. Now imagine it a speed difference of about 300 knots. The sucker hadn't said a word on the radio, so I had no idea he was even in the area until he was behind me. Navy helicopter pilot here. I've got two that would be a tie. One, hearing a once per revolution thumping coming from the rotor head. Then on approach to land the torque gauges went dead, indicating a double engine failure. Luckily the engines were still running, unlike the gauges. 2. Hearing the rotor RPM suddenly decrease for no known reason, followed up by a master warning indicating an engine failure. Engine restarted itself a moment later and it was all good. Still crap myself though. Also teaching people to land on ships at night is just generally terrifying. Helicopters are only held up by magic and hope and no one can convince me otherwise. I'm not a pilot but I took a few lessons years ago just for the experience. We were practicing landings and as we lined up with the runway we started our final. As we're going down the instructor notices a shadow on the ground slightly to our right. It was another plane going to land on our runway and was above us. We had radioed our intentions earlier but don't know if he did. The instructor took over and peeled off. The guy didn't land just kept going. We circled and came in. Apparently no one saw a dang thing. Flight simulator are the Not a pilot, but AF combat systems officer. We were on a military training route. Pretty much what it sounds like. Airspace that is supposed to be cleared out so military jets can practice maneuvers without worrying too much about civilian aircraft. We're at 300 feet AGL cruising along at 420 knots when our TCAS collision alert system using onboard radar starts blaring at us we all look around and don't see anything around us when suddenly some jack butt in a little prop clean who wasn't squawking pulls into a climb about 50 feet off our nose pilot breaks hard to the right and we narrowly avoided a mid-air collision that probably gave them a good shake and hopefully scared them out of ever doing that again my airfield where I did my pilot training had a waterway at the approach end of the runway, and oftentimes there were sailboats heading out to sea as you were coming in to land. Usually came in a little high, since the runway was plenty long enough. One day, not long after I had completed my first solo, I was doing my run up, waiting for one of the regular pilots to land his low winged sport airplane. He obviously, didn't see the mast of the sailboat crossing, and he hit it. The plane cartwheeled down the runway and broke into pieces. I took my plane back to the tide downs to clear the area, and then went to help him out of the plane before it caught on fire, which it didn't amazingly enough. The pilot broke both of his hands at the wrists, and fractured a whole bunch of stuff. Unfortunately, he was a surgeon. Not sure if he was able to work again. Needless to say, I was always very careful on approach after that. 
Unfortunately, he was a surgeon. Not sure if he was able to work again. My sister is a surgeon, and she carries an incredible amount of insurance in case she breaks her hands in such a way that she has to stop working. I think it is some number of millions of dollars. A helicopter about 30-40 feet off my wing. I landed at an uncontrolled field, and as I was making my radio calls coming in, I heard a helicopter also coming in to land and refuel. I didn't need to refuel, so once I landed and did the checklist I turned around and went back to the end of the runway. The end I was taking off happened to be the opposite end of where the fuel farm was. I waited for a couple of other planes to land, including a beautiful red biplane. Made all the radio calls like you're supposed to, taxied out onto the runway and took off. As I was going over the far end of the runway, near the fuel farm, suddenly my iPad screamed at me warning traffic 9 o'clock 100 feet below. I was like WTAF and hauled the yoke over to the right, whereupon I see a helicopter shoot up past my left wing. Why a closer than you should ever be to another aircraft? Dumbass finished refueling and then just took off without making any radio calls. Or listening to anyone else's radio calls, apparently. Many choice words were said over the radio by me. The guy lined up to take off after me goes it. So yeah, that was fun. I always keep a side eye on helicopters after that little bit of excitement. I was landing a Cessna 172 and this massive blue heron appeared out of nowhere and just barely missed hitting my windshield. I don't think I've ever been more scared. In bright. Victoria, Australia there was a magpie which hung out in the paraglider landing zone. Everybody got attacked but it was always at the point where you have to focus so you just ignore the bird and keep flying. Not a pilot, but my daddies. That said, we were flying out of Las Vegas and upon takeoff we nearly collided with another aircraft. This other guy never radioed into tower, never mentioned anything about landing. Just off in his own little world as if he owned the freaking air. He was in a twin engine beach. We were in a single prop Cessna. We were literally within 200 feet of each other, enough that we could see one another, and could probably smell the crap we were crapping out. Except their pilot. Because that guy was so freaking clueless he probably didn't even know there was a runway there. I wouldn't be surprised if he was trying to land on the actual Las Vegas trip. Not a pilot but this happened on a commercial flight and we were never told what actually happened. The cabin started becoming visibly smoky and smelled strongly of smoke. I was in the window seat and the wall window became hot to the touch. The scariest part was that the flight attendants were clearly panicking. They were running up and down the aisles frantically feeling all of the overhead bins for something on fire. They asked us repeatedly to check our devices to make sure nothing was overheating. People were having panic attacks and I started wondering what it would feel like to die how it would happen. The pilot announced that we were close enough to the airport that we were going to continue. About 15-20 minutes and have an emergency landing. When we landed, the runway was lined with fire trucks, ambulances and rescue vehicles. They didn't let us off of the plane for quite some time. Ultimately, firefighters boarded and ushered us off. They never told us what happened. I had to fly back. Same airline. Two days later, while checking my bags, the employee said OMG you were on that flight, that was bad. He gave us a $15 in flight credit and told us to call the airline for more compensation. Never did, but I still wonder what happened. Yeah, that's bad. There are multiple cases of in-flight fires, and they tend to not end well. It's a good thing whatever was overheating didn't fully combust. 
Not quite as exciting as the others, but I nearly had a bird strike with what I believe to be an eagle while flying a very small DA-40 and on final. It's wild how something that appears to be so small can be massive and in your face in the matter of a second. Thunderstorms on either side when I was in a Cessna 152, a bit smaller than a C-172. They developed pretty quickly and we thought we'd have to turn back, but there was a big enough opening to fly through. The windshield got nice and clean too. Another one was seeing the engine start shaking when a part of the oil system blew. I thought it would die on me and I would have to land in some farmland or on a small road. Fortunately we ended up being stuck with one power setting, which was also pretty bad, and could fly it back to the airport. Oh one more. Flying out of Palomar Airport and the old Codgery World War 2 pilot that was teaching my to fly says it's time to do touch and goes for an hour. So we land. I'm feeling good cause I can land a plane. I get in the pattern. Tell tower this is Cessna XXX and the pattern for touch and goes and they are talking me around. Slow day so getting a lot of practice so there was hardly any sweat. An emergency force them to continue me on the downwind leg and wait for instructions. Only no instructions come for about 10 minutes. I'm out of the pattern now and can see the old drag strip so know where I am. Called in and tower was kinda mad. Probably at themselves. Turned me around and got me landed and told me that was enough touch and goes for the day. Instructor was eating lunch in the airport eatery and was a little worried too. A black dot right in front of me that was not moving. At the time I was working on my commercial license in a 172 on about an 8 mile final. I was checking my instruments while on approach and when I looked up I saw a black dot that didn't show any relative movement and in a split second I realized that I'm going to hit it so I pushed the uke forward as fast as I could. About 1-2 seconds later a bird went right above me. Final approach flying a Cessna 172 and pulled power back a little to maintain glide slope. The engine started to cut out completely and the prop started to move a little too slowly for my liking at that moment. Recovered with power and landed normally but had to have it looked into. To borrow my late uncle's story he confided to me. He had a 182 on floats, and on several occasions was happy to play family airlines so that various relatives could make weddings and other events that were just too far for driving and overnighting. One trip was from home base, Vancouver to Kamloops in the interior. He flew VFR and it was a pretty simple task to head out up the Fraser Valley until it pinched off at the town of Hope. At that point there is a notch in the wall of mountains through which the Cockrahalla, both river and highway 5, goes. From there, following HWY, 5 Northeast brings you straight into Kamloops, their destination that day, probably a 200 mile flight. The morning flight up went fine, the three passengers went to their event, and come afternoon's end. They headed back in what were supposed to be clear skies, supposed, flying the reverse route. Clouds began to form quickly on the forested sides of the valley, and soon rolled over the small plane. He was fairly confident of his heading, and stuck to it as the sky whited out. It was all he could do in a day without sat-nav equipment. If he was off by only a few degrees, they'd fly right into a mountainside. His passengers seemed to take no notice, engaged as they were in recounting the day's events. Trying to climb above the cloud was just as dangerous. Small single engine Cessnas are not pressurized, and even if it tops at, say, 6,000 feet, the last thing he wanted was to pop out on top of what might be a white surface as far as the eye could see. If he could drop down once past hope, 
there was a good chance of flying under the soup back to Vancouver. It was, he said, the only time he was really scared in his airplane. The miles ticked away, they should be nearing hope. He never saw it. Suddenly the clouds scattered and before him spread the valley under a high ceiling. He'd threaded the needle, and been right not to chance climbing. They landed at the south airport, and no one even commented about the can of paint they'd flown through. Didn't make me want to be a pilot. Not a pilot but a skydiver. We called to clear the airspace over the airport for a jump and then made our jump run. I was in free fall when I saw small land below me and then it rapidly grew larger. I quickly realized a student pilot out of a nearby flight school didn't know enough to clear the airspace and I flew past his wing at terminal velocity. Just a small difference and I would have ripped right through that little Cessna. I landed without incident but I'm certain the pilot never even knew how close he came to death that day. There's a story up a bit about just about the same thing. But who would from the pilot's pov? Not a pilot but my dad is. Private pilot. He's got a Cessna 172. One time we were flying into this tiny airport, owned and run by this one guy. We were flying in Patton, waiting to land because there was a plane taking off. The plane didn't make it. I remember my dad describing the air being thin. It took off, started to climb and then suddenly dropped like a rock. They crashed. The pilot, a man, died on the scene. His wife at least made it to the hospital. We didn't find out what happened after that. They were an older couple, and the parents of the owner of the airport. They had been visiting him. He was the one working comms when it happened. I vividly remember the way the plane dropped, and the smoke fire in the fire truck's ambulance. The wait to land, watching the smoke rise and the awful broken up communication. Fox on the middle of the runway laying on its back and sunbathing, while I'm headed straight towards it on takeoff. Fox is okay, was still sunbathing and chilling. I saw a blimp from front on at the same altitude as me and had no idea what it was and freaked out over what that giant floating metallic sphere could be for a few minutes before realizing it was a blimp. It's kind of weird to think that there are only 25 blimps in active service around the world, and half of them being advertisement blimps. I would love to have traveled on one of the giant airships of the 30 IES. Just not on the last Hindenburg flight. On my first solo cross country, so my third time ever alone in an airplane, and cross country flights refer just to a flight from one airport to another, not like all the way across the country, the conditions were pretty good when I took off, and at the surface they were good, but a little higher up the forecasted thunderstorms started developing a little earlier than forecasted, the whole way out there it was good, some cumulus clouds for sure and plenty of thermals given how turbulent it was, but none of that is very notable for an August afternoon. By the time I had landed, taxied back, departed, and started on my way home they had definitely started to at least get pretty tall. I ended up flying under what was most likely a developing thunderstorm on my third solo. It was well clear in terms of cloud clearance and it wasn't more developed than some big grey clouds but there wasn't really a good way around it since there was quite a lot of development in the area and going around would have resulted in a fairly significant deviation from my flight plan which obviously made me nervous on my first solo flight navigating. Everything worked out obviously, and I'm nearly to my private pilot's license now. But that was some added stress to an already stressful flight. Also came within probably 30 feet of one bald eagle, and 50 of another soaring together at 3500 feet. 
On one hand it is pretty awesome to see such a cool creature way up there doing its thing. On the other a huge bird like that versus my little piper warrior wouldn't have ended well for anyone involved. Funny enough that was actually on one of my preparation flights for my solo XC so I guess that was just an exciting route. I'm glad I don't have any really exciting stories yet though. Given how little flying time I have I would be really unlucky if I did lol. My father was a commercial pilot for over 35 years and has been flying for over 45. He has all kinds of wild stories which range from searching for debris after the Challenger disaster to the mayhem he endured as a pilot during the 9-11 attacks and even towing banners at the Jersey Shore. But the craziest story I've asked him to retell a million times took place off the coast of NSW in Australia in the late 1970s. His plane and crew were in a traffic pattern and were delayed landing because there was quite literally an unidentified flying object on the radar that the tower was tracking. For a while they just circled around in this pattern waiting for other planes to land before they could enter the landing pattern and lo and behold, the crew eventually got a direction of where this thing was and when they looked out their windows they could see a cigar shaped craft moving very slowly at about their same altitude. Upon seeing this, all of the crew and passengers who could see it audibly gasped and my dad says that was the most disturbing part. Anyway, eventually it went off scope and they got the all clear to land and nothing more came of it but it was always my favorite story as a kid to hear from my pops. Not a pilot, but I've personally witnessed an oh crap moment. I was up at a rather nice kids camp one summer installing some access control, locks, card swipes, cameras, etc. It was situated on a rather large lake. There was also a fire nearby. One day I hear a bomber coming in for a refill. I should also note that this lake has zip lines going across it. Well marked ones that a pilot should be able to see from the air. The pilot saw it when it was almost too late. I've never seen a bird that large climb that fast. Was on an L-1011 flying back to Atlanta. We circled Atlanta forever it seemed. Then the co-pilot walks down my aisle opens a hatch in the floor beside me and starts cranking the crap out of a handle. He looked up at me and said, the landing gear wouldn't go down. I said, good to know. I've been pretty lucky in my short piloting career, only around 60 hours as of right now, and I'm still in training. The scariest thing I've seen is a bald eagle about 8 featuring from my left wing tip. It was only 8 featuring from the wing tip because me and my instructor dove and rolled the plane as soon as possible. Those large birds are a serious hazard to small aircraft. I was in a Cessna 172S. Be careful of your animal pilots. I was a passenger in a helicopter that was attacked by a bald eagle. All of a sudden we were sideways in the air with the pilot swearing his face off at the bird. Straightened out and finished the trip. Apparently it happens a lot at that base. Sandspit in Haida Gwaii. My brother is learning how to fly and I've gone up with him once to do touch and goes. The thing I remember is them talking about where to crash land if we lose power. Something I didn't really prepare myself for but I guess it's an airplane so we gotta do something. People who work for airlines, what are secrets passengers don't know? When flying overseas there are generally no systems tracking the movement of your aircraft for several thousand miles that is how they go missing. People fake needing a wheelchair to gain boarding priority. 10 wheelchairs get on and only one person needs it getting off. We call them miracle flights. 
If you checked your dog there's about a 30% chance it's terrified before it even gets on the plane. Who knows how scared it gets during the actual flight. Bag room agents will usually try to comfort a scared animal, but all we can really do is talk to it, so if you write your pet's name on their carrier it usually helps a lot. I've never seen a cat who was scared in the bag room. Cats don't give a frick. That there's a huge list of things that can be missing from the aircraft while still being allowed to fly. True, it's called a minimum equipment list, Mel. Counterintuitively, it's a list of what can be broken on the aircraft while it still remains airworthy. It should be noted that the operational limits of the aircraft are altered to respond to broken parts. For instance, if certain lights are broken, the aircraft is restricted to daytime use. You know how all the other armrests can be raised except for the one next to the aisle? Turns out that one can be raised as well via a small button and a divot on the underside of the armrest. Useful if you want to spread out a bit more, though some flight attendants may tell you to put it back in place. If you check a skateboard by just slapping a sticker on it, it will get ridden or used as a dolly. Might check my skateboard just to entertain the baggage dudes. Paramedic here. If you switch on your alarm lights on the ambulance while being on the inner field of the airport, because, well you just get there sometimes, they will totally shut down all incoming and outgoing flights until they know exactly what's going on. My buddy learned this the hard way, needless to say people got mad at him. I'm an outstation mechanic for multiple airlines. I cover all flights at a major US city airport, by myself. Where to start? If your flight has a maintenance delay and there is no on-station mechanics for that carrier I get called. If it's a quick fix, I fix it. If not we check to see if it can be deferred to get fixed later. Either way, most of your delay is spent waiting on me to do all the paperwork to clear the aircraft or for me to finish the other 7 calls I'm out on to get to your plane. There is also constant pressure on both me and the pilots to clear fly aircraft that have some fairly significant problems. I have airlines try to get me to sell some pretty sketchy stuff to the pilots to get them to fly and avoid a costly delay. I have no problems telling a pilot to call his controller's dispatchers and tell them to frick off if I'm not comfortable with whatever concoction of deferral action I was asked to perform. Don't get me wrong, the airlines would never willingly fly an unsafe aircraft. But if there is say an engine vibration that is just right at a sea hair under the limit they will fly it. If the oil is super low but servicing it will cause a delay, service it at the next stop. If the pilot encounters something at altitude that I can't duplicate on the ground, sign it off and see if it happens again. Those are the ones I usually push back on depending what it is. Also, if you have to get out of your seat so a mechanic can fix something don't be about it. I get harassed all the time by passengers even though my sole purpose is to get them in the air. Besides, I tell gate agents all the time not to load packs until I get out there but they never listen so go be at them. Not a secret, just common sense. The reason some bags miss their flight or get misrouted is because passengers don't remove old tags. It confuses handlers as well as the conveyor belt scanners. I see it happen all the time. I used to work for warehouse that supplied a certain airline with items. The headsets that are given to you are not new. Despite being wrapped up, they are taken off the flight, cleaned, and then packaged again. Flight attendants have a list of who is who and what seat they are in as well as what level of frequent flyer they happen to be, or if they are employees or family and friends tickets. This is why you will see them being rude to someone or bending over backwards for jerks. 
Flights are routinely overbooked because there's an estimate per route of what percentage of people tend to miss the flight, so if you don't have a seat assignment, you might not get on, which is why they ask for volunteers. If you are a frequent flyer and know the busy times and flights you could volunteer all day from every flight going to a hub and make $1000 in credit, invest in quality luggage, you are the only one that handles your bag with care, your bag is going to take a beating in the system. Employees and their families get it tickets it is for industry discount, which means they only pay taxes and fees and nothing for the actual ticket. The airlines basically lets them fly for free, and not just with their own airline, but with every airline in any alliance. The tickets are standby tickets, so you're not guaranteed to get on board, but you get a seat more often than not. The family members can travel on these tickets without the employee. My dad worked for an airline in Star Alliance. So I used to get free tickets with airlines in One World and Sky Team as well as Star Alliance. I usually traveled in business class, all around the world. A return trip between Europe and Japan was something like 200 US dollars in business class, and maybe 50 US dollars in economy. I don't get any perks anymore, as it was only valid until I turned 25. Sometimes your pilot can be on food stamps because they only make 19k Baggage handlers see hundreds of bags a day. No bag is treated special, unless it is obvious. Even then, depending on the person, sometimes they're not, which is rare. Bags are not intentionally harmed. They are, however, intentionally thrown, slid, jostled, stacked under hundreds of pounds of other bags and exposed to the elements because that is the nature of the job. You can safely assume that your bag is touched and handled by at least 7-8 people per flight segment. If you are connecting at least 10 different people, not including Tsar, sometimes the vehicle that fills the potable water for washing hands and making coffee is parked next to the vehicle that is used to dump the shitters and fill the blue juice for the lamps. They're not supposed to. Sometimes, they're parked at a distance from each other, which is policy, yet the guy who is filling the water is using gloves that he hasn't changed in over two years. The most power you could probably wield is Twitter. The employee in front of you has so little power to actually remedy tough situations. Baggage handlers are usually short-staffed, as well. Customer service agencies are usually limited in their options. Also, it would help us get a message to higher-ups because our work is not being supported as it should be. Heck, I'd even recommend asking an employee about the problem and say something like, if I were to take my complaint to Twitter, how could I phrase it in a way that would help you too? You get more customer protections buying directly from the airline. All those third-party travel sites are owned by the same company, and you'll lose a lot of the rights afforded to you in the airline's contract of carriage. If you're nice to people, they'll be nice back to you. When the drink card is coming through, you can ask for a full can of pop instead of the tiny little cup filled with mostly ice. Not particularly a secret but one time I was upgraded to business class on a plane that was delayed for maintenance. Just settling into my middle row I'll seat up at the movie screen bulkhead when a hatch in the floor of the cabin right at my feet flipped open and the maintenance engineer climbed up. He had a clipboard of paperwork for the pilot to sign, then climbed back into his hole, tipping his hat to the passengers before closing the hatch over his head. If you look for it you can see a recessed pull ring in the cabin floor in front of the first row seats behind cockpit. I work revenue management for an airline. On average, the cheapest time to buy a ticket is Tuesday afternoon. 
the cheapest time to fly is Tuesday, Wednesday, or Saturday. This applies to US flights in my experience. Aerospace fastener production here. Nobody there asks what is actually holding the plane together. Don't worry about it. The coffee is absolutely disgusting because no one washes the container that goes out every morning. The station agents who get paid way too little don't give a crap about cleaning it. I certainly didn't when I worked for AA. Also, because we weren't given the proper supplies to clean it, we pretty much just rinsed it out and dumped coffee into it. Be nice to the ticket agent and they will pretty much always let you get away with overweight bags. If you were funny, I'd even not charge you for bags. My partner worked for Delta for about 4 years as one of the guys who loads and unloads your luggage and waves wands. Nothing is safe in those bags. They pop open all the time and your crap just gets haphazardly shoved back in. They get tossed around like volleyballs. Tsa is a lie. A lot of decisions about boarding or switching flights, act, are at employees discretion. Worked on military aircraft but it's something I've noticed pretty universal about jet engines in general. You have your auxiliary engine that runs while the aircraft is parked, providing power, hydraulics, AC, ETC while you're at the terminal. When getting ready to depart, you turn on your main engines. It takes a lot of power to get them started. As such, most of the auxiliary power goes to starting the engines. This is the point where usually you may see the lights flicker, and you will hear the whine of the main engine start up. The environmental control unit, or whatever they want to call it, stops cycling air during this start sequence. Without fail, if you watch for it, numerous hands will stick up and check or adjust the air conditioning vents as this happens. The air will kick back on when the engines are up and running. As shown in some movies like Executive Decision and Passenger 57, there is a secret hatch on every plane that allows people to travel freely throughout the aircraft. Also, Wade Boggs once drank 50 beers on a cross-country flight and then absolutely destroyed the Seattle Mariners the next day. Worked at multiple airports as a consultant and this is common at almost all I've worked at. Mechanics love to take their coffee breaks right behind the security checkpoint. This is where you will see women in a rush with their outermost garments off and bending over to put their shoes back on. The jackpots are passengers that didn't know a sweater or hoodie they are wearing had to come off until they are told to remove it by the tsar. So they have very little underneath. I wasn't part of this so don't downvote me. Just telling the tales of the trade. Not an airport. I worked at a theme park in Florida. There was a water ride where ladies would often get their blouses splashed with water. There was a bridge over a part of the ride where you could look straight down as the riders went by. It was a very popular place for male employees to stop and look over the rail of the bridge for a few minutes. Pilots flight crews of Reddit. What went wrong on your flight that the passengers never knew about? I'm a bush pilot in Canada. I was working the right seat of a turbo water. My first ever flight in one so I was still getting used to the setup. We were taking off from a short strip in the middle of nowhere with 6 drillers in the back and a bunch of gear. Captain started the engine as I was just finishing up the passenger briefing. He started rolling down the runway as I was just getting seated. I thought he was just positioning the plane to prepare for takeoff, but then he gave it full throttle. I didn't even have my seatbelt or headset on yet. I'm focusing on getting this stuff on when I realize something isn't right. Getting closer to the end of the strip. Captain starts to panic as we aren't getting airborne. His hands were shaking like mad and he kept reaching for things but he couldn't figure out what was wrong. 
I think he was too busy looking at the trees and creek right ahead of us. I realized the problem. He was in such a rush to leave that he didn't do a pre-takeoff check. The propeller was still in full course, feathered on shut down. It should have been full fine for takeoff. I yelled gestured to him the problem and immediately pushed the prop forward. Engine had a huge surge and we just barely cleared the trees at the end of the strip. He acted like nothing happened for the rest of the flight. We didn't even speak a single word to each other. I suspect none of the passengers even realized what had happened and how close we were to being another statistic. When we got back to the airport I told him I was leaving. Packed my bags and never looked back. Great example of why checklists and procedure are always so important no matter how good someone thinks they are. Girlfriend is a flight attendant, so I asked her for a few stories. 1. Upon landing, one of the tires blew out. It pretty much just resulted in a bigger jolt than usual, and although a few passengers commented on it, the crew just played it off as a more or less regular landing. Girlfriend, what are you gonna do? Tell everybody a tire just blew and get them all panicked? 2. At least once a week, there's an armed, plainclothes federal air marshal riding on the plane, usually in first class. There there is a security measure, in case the cockpit is breached or something, even if people are aware that air marshals are a thing. Usually portrayed in Hollywood as escorting a criminal, they don't realize the frequency with which the marshals ride along on planes. 3. A guy on the plane was from a connecting flight from a Eurasian airline, with a boarding pass under some other woman's name. The woman happened to be on the flight as well, so he obviously didn't belong. The guy could have stayed if he had just gone through Tsar again, but he refused to go through the process and was very strongly insistent on talking to the captain directly. Big red flag right there. No idea what the real story was, she believes that it was a foiled terrorism attempt, but the crew treated it as a simple duplicate boarding pass problem. Again, the problem was dealt with and you don't want to unnecessarily worry the passengers. 4. A lot of people try to join the mile high club. Like, a lot. I wasn't the crew on either, but my service had two pretty severe bird strikes within several weeks of each other. One was a hawk of some kind and the second was a duck. The duck strike happened with a patient loaded, evidently just as the pilot was flipping his NVGs up. The duck came through the windscreen and went to smithereens along with all the plexiglass. I helped clean up the back of the helicopter later, and it looked like a duck had swallowed a duck of lit dynamite. The strike also happened at the exact moment the med crew had pushed a medication that relaxes all the muscles in the patient's body including breathing muscles. And in spite of the chaos they continued their procedure and successfully controlled the patient's airway. The pilot also continued the flight in spite of being covered in duck blood guts feathers, as well as his own blood from his broken nose. The crew, and the other birds strike crew, received commendations for their calm composure under the circumstances. It's pretty mind-boggling the damage a several pound bird can inflict. It looked like a duck had swallowed a duck of lit dynamite. I don't care if this was a typo. This is what I'm choosing to believe took place. Not a pilot, but one of my buddies is. We were talking about one of the more remote airports that we'd both visited. Located in a difficult place that has a lot of wind shear. So passengers are used to having the plane make a couple of attempts when landing. Anyway, my friend said the sensors for the landing gear malfunctioned. So he couldn't tell whether the wheels were down or if they'd gotten stuck. He flew low, made an announcement to the cabin that they needed to circle the runway because of the wind, and made a call to the control tower asking for someone to make a visual confirmation that the landing gear was fully deployed. 
My dad had a wasp in the cockpit with him once. He said his first thought when he noticed it right after taking off was oh, so this is how I die. I used to do contract maintenance work on aircraft, and once a bunch of us were returning from a job in Germany, the plane was a scheduled flight on a small, 50 seat or so, turboprop aircraft, and it was a bumpy flight, I am fairly well traveled, and working on aircraft made me more confident than most of flying. But the turbulence started to get so bad that I was getting nervous. Nobody except the flight crew were allowed to unfasten their seat belts, and even they were being thrown about as they tried to move around. It was by far the worst flight I have been on. So anyway, just as things were getting to the peak of shittiness, one of the stewardesses made her way to one of my colleagues sitting across the aisle, and said, in a hushed tone excuse me sir, is it true that you guys are aircraft engineers? We have a slight problem out the back, and thought you might be able to help. I honestly thought we were going to die, that the bumpiness was not down to turbulence, but some flight system had gone AWOL. I didn't know what the frick any of us would be able to do on unfamiliar equipment with no documentation, no spares and no tools. But sure enough my colleague went off with a stewardess and disappeared through the door out of the cabin. Ten minutes late he was back. And of course we were keen to know what the problem was and if he was able to do anything about it. The problem turned out to be a ratchet strap on one of the cupboard doors in the galley was jammed so they couldn't get the snacks out. The flight continued to be horrible, and the snacks were predictably crap. As a child, my family and I spent a few days in the Bahamas and as we were at the outdoor airport single runway we discovered that we were flying an 8 seater single prop plane back to Florida. The first time taxiing down the runway, the pilots discovered something was wrong with the engine so they pulled off to the side and made us sit next to the plane as they attempted to fix the engine. After being told that the plane was functioning again, we boarded and began to taxi down the runway again. I was watching the pilot and company pilot do their thing when I noticed the airspeed indicator drop to zero as we were about to lift off. At this point we were running out of runway and I watched as the co-pilot jabbed the non-working gauge with his palm and the gauge began to work again. The pilots then looked at each other, back at us, then back at each other before laughing. Honestly, a not totally uncommon problem. Sometimes those gauges just get stuck, and a smack can unstuck them. Percussive maintenance sometimes really does work. Dad's a pilot, so I get to hear all of these. Good one that comes to mind. Mind you, he flies 737s for a major airline, getting ready to take off at night. He sees a plane about to land on the taxi where he's waiting on. He immediately just starts turning on every exterior light on the plane. Other plane pulled out of final descent at like 500 feet. Cockroach in the cockpit. Red eye from LAX. One of us was strapped in while the other one hunted for the little sucker. We once brought a pigeon from Newark to Dayton. The little scavenger was hiding in the back eating pretzel crumbs. Just started walking down the aisle about 30 minutes into the flight. He stayed chill and I only had a handful of passengers so we just let it happen. Shoot him off in Dayton. His family probably misses him. I was flying a Piper Navajo that seats 8 passengers out of a small airport. We were making all of our required radio calls. But because this was a small uncontrolled airport some people in small airplanes will operate without radios or just don't care enough to broadcast their position. Anyway we were doing our due diligence but not long after takeoff and while leaving the traffic pattern my FO says crap and takes control from me and make a relatively aggressive, for passengers at least, 
Turn to the right. As he does this I see a Cessna out my left window no more that 150 featuring below us. We essentially climbed through the altitude he was cruising at and turned to avoid him. Only one passenger noticed when we got to the destination and he told us it was a good move. Good times. It was a flight from Kansas to Oregon, and as we were mid-flight, a hawk freaking dive-bombed the wing and entered it. The pilot announced the subtle fud as minor turbulence, but the crew knew what had happened. No one knew how the heck the hawk was flying so high. It was a smaller plane, so we only had one and a half dozen people, not counting us crew members. The den didn't actually mess with flight too much, but it's a heck of a story to tell. I fly on a Beechcraft 1900. CND models, varies flight to flight, quite frequently, it's a similar size to what you described in fact, every once in a while I'll see a bird shoot past my window at insane heights, but yeah, a hawk saying frick this plane in particular is one heck of a story. Not me but my father, years ago when dad was flying the 767 for Air Canada they were coming out of London Heathrow back to Canada in the winter time and some snow had started to fall. Heathrow 10 years ago was notorious for letting a dusting of snow hamper operations. Dad and crew expedited boarding and pre-flight as much as they could and pulled the brakes and pushed back early to get to head in the queue for takeoff. They couldn't get a taxi clearance right away as a number of aircraft ahead of them had opted to wait for the heaviest of the snow to pass prior to taking off and the controllers wouldn't move them out of the way. Dad basically begged them to move them ahead somehow, as he had been around the block a time or two and knew what was coming, but to avail. Ground had them park the airplane and they sat loaded at the gate for 4 hours before all flights out were cancelled. Over 4 inches of snow, the airport's inability to deal with the snow and backlog of traffic meant that Air Canada couldn't get a plane out for 3 more days, by which time they had brought extra aircraft over from Montreal to try to relieve some of the buildup. So in this story what the passengers didn't know is that if they were maybe 10 minutes faster boarding the plane they wouldn't have gotten stuck in London for an extra 3 days. I was giving my sister and a friend a tour of the Chicago skyline over Lake Michigan. We are all having a good time. Suddenly, the engine goes quiet. A nightmare especially because I only have one of them. The silence was noticeable and my sister starts looks at me and starts to panic. The engine comes back within about 3 seconds alive and well, and I head for the nearest airport. In a small propeller plane, it is hard to hide the silence of the engine, but since it came back, I acted like nothing happened. I don't think they realize how critical of a situation it almost was. Contrary to popular belief, the propeller's primary function is to keep the pilot cool, because you should see him sweat when it stops. I was asked this question by a passenger while I was experiencing a problem with the rudder brake pedals in the plane I was flying. He basically asked what was the most urgent situation was I had encountered while in flight. Little did he know that it was happening in real time at that moment. I had called the tower of my destination airport to report my position and request landing. As I'm going through my checklist I positioned my feet on the rudder pedals to have authority of the tow brakes to slow the aircraft after landing. As I moved my foot on the right pedal it sort of flopped forward. What does this mean? A couple potential problems, especially while on approach for landing. With the pedal flopped forward it meant the top of the pedal would be pushed into the firewall and severely limit right rudder control. Not having bilateral brake control greatly increases the likelihood of a ground loop, 
or spinning out of control and flipping the plane over or off the runway. I narrated the problem to my passenger as I acted out the physical inspection to try to solve the problem. I reached down with my hand and flipped the pedal back up so that it was at least in the right position. Apparently the linkage for the right brake had become disconnected. I knew that if I put the plane on the numbers I had almost 5000 feet to roll out and clear the runway for the next aircraft. I made an uneventful landing and just rolled and rolled with light left brake and some counter steering to keep the plane under control while it naturally slowed. The controller asked me to expedite clearing the runway and I replied that I would but I still rolled until I could just steer naturally off the runway. The passenger had no idea that I was encountering my first significant mechanical failure. I was just over 100 hours of flight time and working at a flight school as a dispatcher and front office person on Sundays. My passenger was someone that one of our clients had dropped off at another airport and was unable to pick him up. I told the guy I'd come get him after my shift if he'd cover half the rate of the plane of my choice. I was extremely familiar with the aircraft I chose but a cotter key failed and allowed the brake linkage to disconnect. Everyone lived. As a kid, 8-9, I flew in a small plane with my Air Force dad and his friend. We lived in Minot ND, big base there, and were flying sometime in winter. Later I learned we had such a long joy flight that day because the landing gear froze up, and we were flying around trying to get them to come down. As we were almost out of fuel they were planning to crash land on the frozen river, when in the nick of time the landing gear unfroze and deployed. I had no idea though, it was beautiful flying above a winter wonderland. My brother was first stationed there, that place is a whole lot of nothing filled with a whole bunch of snow for a lot of the year haha. <laughs> Pilots. What is your least favorite airport? LaGuardia, hands down. Just a complete pain from 18,000 feet until you're at the gate. Unfortunately, it doesn't stop there. The airport is packed. The food sucks and it's insanely expensive. There's people everywhere. It's sold. Leaving? After 4 MD88s you're cleared to push to spot 29 where you'll call ground 7 times unanswered and then be number 37 for takeoff after convoluted taxi instructions that include several 2 letter taxiways and multiple hold short instructions. Also, don't forget to call clearance with your PDC code and get stepped on multiple times. At least when you leave you have checking in with Washington Center to look forward to. It's almost amusing how much everyone loathes that airport. Nobody wants to be there. Passengers, pilots, employees. Jig along in outback western Australia. Two men are rocks. Georgetown Airport, known as E36 on us pilot maps, located in Northern California. This is why I dislike it so much. 1. It's on a mountain. 2. One end of the runway ends on a cliff. 3. The other ends 10 featuring from some trees. 4. The runway has an incline. 5. The runway is narrow, bumpy, and a bit short. 6. It's in the middle of nowhere, and almost completely deserted if you frick up. It's not the worst airport in the world, but it's not great either. Charleston WVA. The end is on a mountain, so you get to do a 180 on the edge. I can emotionally accept a crash landing. I have real trouble with a crash after landing. It's really freaky as a passenger too, since you can't see the airport until you land it feels like you're flying right into the side of a mountain. Combine that with the fact I was usually on some 10 seat puddle jumper and it doesn't make a great experience. Huge props to the EasyJet pilot who got us on the ground at London Gatwick last night. On the second attempt, 
Despite terrifying crosswinds, I'm not a nervous flyer, but when we were 15 feet from the runway, only for the engines to roar and the plane to climb steeply back into the air, I was definitely feeling pretty tense. The wind was horrible and the rain was driving, and on our second approach, the wings were definitely tilting, but he got us safely and smoothly on the ground. Thanks man, you're legend. LaGuardia is 100% the worst. There is a reason us pilots refer to it as la garbage. That miserable, always delayed, overcrowded shithole fills me with such hatred it's unbelievable. Oh, it's your go home day? Well guess what? One drop of rain just fell in Nick so you're gonna have to eat this 5 hours delay buddy. Have a nice day. Goddamn I hate that place. I hear some guys would rather land in the Hudson than Ray route to LaGuardia. Airline captain here, LaGuardia, short runways and crazy congested, you're close to other airplanes and the ramp area is tight, Chicago is a ridiculous long taxi experience, in Nick JFK is better than EWR because there are more runway choices and it's slightly more spread out, Nick airports are ran at 100% capacity so when weather rolls in or they swap runways it's a huge ripple effect that is painful when you want your day to be over. Ord taxiing feels like it lasts 5 years from a passenger's perspective, and even longer when you have to sit on the plane for an additional hour after boarding because random lightning suddenly appeared over the lake a few minutes after boarding finished. That was the worst. Actual pilot here, I'm going to say Newark and LaGuardia. Someone farting in the wind could cause 2 hours delays up there, but in all seriousness with the congested airspace of EWR, LGA and JFK any weather in the northeast can cause some serious delays. Even though it's my home airport, LAX is a pain in the butt. The whole airport has been a construction zone for as long as I can remember, with no end in sight. I recently just sat next to an off-duty pilot on a flight. He told me his regular route was la to Hong Kong and back. He said he would always do what he could to avoid having to land in Russia or China, and would opt, if he has the choice, to land in either Alaska or Japan. ATP here. I'm surprised no one has said Charlotte NC. Congested and massive taxi delays for no reason other than a crappy layout and incompetence on the part of ramp controllers. Yeah but from a passenger standpoint, the terminal is great with lots of restaurants and easy to get around in. I fly, pilot, into one of the reliever airports and avoid KCLT like the plague. I will say though transiting the area at low levels is a nightmare, so flying intrastate, NC, is never direct. Helicopter pilot here, what's this runway you speak of, like at a fashion show for pretty ladies? Also, Sharm El Sheikh in Egypt is the worst airport in the world, Inshallah is not an appropriate landing clearance. Tower clears you to land if God is willing, that's some good stuff right there. I travel often for work and I have heard pilots hate John Wayne airport and that it's dangerous to fly out of, luckily that's my choice of airport. I was on a southwest flight leaving John Wayne once and right when the engines cut, the flight attendant gets on the intercom and whispers be very, very quiet, we're flying over rich people, makes me giggle every time I think about it. My father is a pilot and thoroughly dislikes London City Airport. London City is great as a passenger, but I can imagine it being crappy for a pilot. Gets city pride that nobody is mentioning O'Hare or Midway. An aircraft carrier. Yes it's very difficult to land an aircraft carrier on a pilot. The deck of the, the USS Theodore Roosevelt. 
CVN 71, at night with 10 foot seas. Motherfricking Kona Hawaii, so much plane traffic that they frick over us choppers and make us hover for ages waiting for takeoff. We could depart from the ramp easily but nope. Hold. Terminal experience is also freaking miserable here. This airport is undeniably bad. Actual pilot. Toronto Pearson International. Yes this airport is massive. But the second it gets windy or they get a mm of snow, the whole place goes to crap. Cancellations and delays everywhere. Two days ago, 200 flights cancelled for a bit of wind. Last week we landed 5 hours late because of some snow. When we landed, I counted at least 20 planes sitting around waiting for gates. Apparently some had been waiting for 2 plus hours. Not to mention the landing fees are insane. To be fair, it was a crap ton of snow. I landed in Quito, Ecuador once. It took 3 attempts because of 4 and the crazy location. Fuyoking Tetebra, NJ. Doesn't help that I have to go there at least twice every trip I'm on. Was hoping to hear about Tegucigalpa, Honduras. When flying and out of Tegucigalpa, it's best to be seated in the aisle. You really don't want look out the window while taking off or landing. Especially landing, and landing. You may see the ground crew removing treetops from the landing gear. Disclaimer, I'm no pilot, but I did crap my pants once when landing at Tegucigalpa. Nassau, heavy crosswinds, FOD, and really crappy controllers. Not me, but my dad said that the Juanshoe, Erosquin Airport in Saba, Sab TNCS, had the shortest runway he had ever seen with a cliff at both ends of it so that doesn't sound fun. Before it was decommissioned, Kaitak Airport was the most dangerous large airport in the world to land at, because it was basically in the heart of Hong Kong. It required specialized training G. Pilots had to take a course to be allowed to land there. But dang it made for some cool views from the ground, or at least that I've seen from YT. I'm surprised Newark isn't more hated. On certain days you can sit in the IKEA across the street and count 10 plus planes in line to land. LaGuardia beats that, the landing requires a sharp hook at low altitude after crossing by Manhattan, then you deal with a short runway. Aspen kinda sucks especially when the weather goes down, sure it's pretty, but it can be a pain in the butt. Glad you asked, I'm tired of my home base airport and need to vent it out, Mexico City's airport sucks in every way imaginable, the parallel runways, which are the only ones, air and separated enough to allow simultaneous approaches and departures, so aircraft from both terminals have to take off from the same runway and land on the other one, causing huge ground delays, it's common to spend one hour or more taxiing, the place is too freaking crowded, they only built 74 gates, we use about 110, how 30 plus remote stands, some are really really far from the terminals, again it's not uncommon for the airport buses to arrive 30 or 40 minutes after you've parked, and if we're in transit, then wait 40 more minutes for the fuel truck to arrive to your stand. The entire terminal smells like crap for some reason and the public restrooms have no ventilation, increasing the crap smell. This really irks me, because it's a terrible welcome for foreign people who might get a bad idea about our country, the president, and all official aviation including the navy, sometimes the army, diplomatic flights, state visits etc. Don't use the dang army's airport which is a few minutes away from the city, they use our airport and get priority for taxiing. Take off and landing, 
So again, not unusual to be delayed 30 minutes just because the president is swinging by. On top of the small annoyances, it's not an easy operation by any means. High altitude airport, montainous terrain all around, in-flight delays by long but flight vectors and holding patterns due to traffic saturation, really bad weather every day from May to September, volcanic ash from the popper catapetal all year round, frequent awful wind shear conditions causing you to go around. The airport on Fast 5 because is so long and dangerous to go on. LaGuardia, she's an evil bee. Heavy winds from the west are stirred up by downtown and make for some interesting landings. Ground control gets so saturated that sometimes it takes 10 minutes just to get your name and the hat to taxi out, and then you might be number 45 in line for departure. For every minute of listening to LGA ground, your actual age increases at a ratio times pi. The old terminals are truly third world. You feel like a refugee when you try and shove your way through the huddled masses. There's one men's room on the B concourse serving a thousand people. The terminals are kept at 85 degrees, summer and winter. All the good food is outside of security, so you have to exit and then re-enter to get a halfway decent bite to eat. Trump 757 haunts the landscape, and so you're stuck looking at it for hours on the taxi out to depart RWY 13. On departure there are no fewer than 4 different procedures to follow depending on which couple of hundred feet you lose an engine after takeoff, which seem to have been designed mostly for noise abatement instead of, you know, safety. Traffic is thick, runways aren't very long, and if you land long you splash down in cold salt water. Any airport with that crushable foam emergency stopping concrete at the end of the runway isn't really operating within its original design limits. I hate LGA. Clearly most people here have not been to Mex the biggest dumpster and complicated airport in the world. Some stats, first it's at 7500 feet, 2400 m, above sea level so approaches are a lot faster than other airports. Surrounded by mountains and requires a precise approach with a 130 degree turn to align with the runways. You overfly a huge and populated city so no sully stunts are posable here. The airport dates from the 1940s and has been under construction since and it's a Frankenstein. It's overpopulated and understaffed. A huge dumpster was constructed very far away in the 50s and now it's near so in a bad day it smells. The runways are lengthy but are very narrow and so close that operations are complicated. Taxiways are so small that the A380 need a guy in a car to guide it to the gate. Congestion is bad that sometimes aircraft wait 40 minutes just to get a gate. Buy bottled water. Traffic to get there in or out is a nightmare and to top it off they're making a new super modern one just outside this dumpster. I'm not a pilot but I'm told by pilots I know that if you can land in St. John's International in Newfoundland, you can land anywhere. Washington Dulles Airport. I'll answer because I'm a pilot. You never specified ATP or even commercial. I'm going with 3LF in Litchfield, IL. The winds were very freaky on my short final. I randomly dropped altitude, and I about chat my pants. Every airport has weird little idiosyncrasies like that, but this resulted in a go around as my approach was no longer stabilized. When I came back around, it was fine because I was ready for that weird shift, and I had a smooth landing. The FBO terminal was nice, ate their candy, took a giant dump. They have a crew car and internet access to check weather. Once it cleared in southern Missouri I was off. Montreal, 
the controllers can't handle more than two airplanes at once, and they speak French to the locals so you can't tell what's going on. Also new ec because GDP. Try our aviation if you want an actual answer. Lol try our flying if you want an actual answer. Aviation is more for enthusiasts but our flying is full of actual pilots who flare their ratings. It. 99% non-pilots and 1% American pilots talking about airports I've never heard of. I'm a pilot in the US. I'd say Reno, Sun Valley, Idaho, Jackson Hole and Aspen. I don't actually fly into the last one. The reason I don't like them is terrain. When you lose an engine during takeoff and you're too fast to safety abort on the runway you have to continue into the air. At this point your climb performance is limited and you have to conduct complex single engine departure procedures that in some cases like Sun Valley on a single engine balked landing into runway 31. Do not guarantee terrain clearance. That's never a good feeling. Busy airports don't bother me. The ones surrounded by tall mountains do. P's nearly all airports guarantee terrain clearance. It is the single engine balk landing in Sun Valley that does not. Pilots of Reddit. What was your oh no this is not good moment that turned out to be okay without the passengers knowing about it? In flight training, we were practicing stalls. While doing a power on stall, pulling back to lose airspeed, I notice another plane coming at us, probably 100 yards away. I immediately throw the nose down to avoid death and my instructor looks at me with a weird look. He didn't see the other guy. He tells me that not even close to the stall speed and I tell him about the other airplane. He says oh yeah, good call. On the way back to the airport I ask him if he's had any experiences like that. He said he's come so close that he could see the whites in the other pilot's eyes. Flying VFR can be fun. Private pilot here. Flying a small four-seater about a year after getting my license at 17 to take my parents to lunch at Harris Ranch in BFE Central California. There's a small runway next to a monstrous cattle farm that has a delicious restaurant that I swear they must walk the cow straight into the kitchen and out on a platter. When we left Sacramento the seating configuration was my small framed mother and myself up front, and my 275 pounds dad in the back. This led to a center of gravity to the rear situation that required me to set the trim forward to stay level hour the nose would keep drifting up. Flight to HR was uneventful and we had a wonderful lunch but for the return trip we decided that my dad would sit up front and my mom would move to the back. Stupid 18 year old me didn't follow every step of the pre-flight checklist and I forgot to retrain the controls to neutral before taking off. Started down the runway for takeoff and as soon as I hit speed I realized my mistake that with the new wave distribution the CG shifted forward, as well as the controls trimmed forward. I pulled back on the oak to rotate and it didn't budge. Never in my life has 1000 feet of remaining runway suddenly appeared to reduce to nothing. To make things worse the end of the runway was an elevated row leading to an overpass with cars on it. I literally wrapped both arms around the uke and pulled back with all my strength to get the nose wheel to slightly lift off the runway and the plane slowly inches off the ground. The embankment to the road got closer and closer and I had visions of emergency crews having to scrape us off the surface. Leftovers and all. As we approached it became clear that we were going to just clear the road but I saw a pickup approaching the road and I wasn't sure we weren't going to collide. He saw us coming and slowed to a stop and I swear I was able to look straight in his eyes as we cleared the road. When we were safely clear of trees and obstructions I was able to let go with one arm and reach down to turn the wheel that trims the controls. 
as I was thanking my lucky stars to have survived the day my dad was muttering at me something like, very funny, I didn't eat that much. Both he and my mom assumed I was making a joke because my dad ate a huge lunch and thought I was acting like the plane couldn't take off. I never told them the truth about how close a call that it actually was, nor did I ever forget to reset the trim before takeoff. I mean, the fact that you're alive to tell the story is kind of a spoiler but my heart was in my mouth. So had just recently gotten my private pilot license, no instrument rating, decide to fly the wife out to Ocracoke and the Outer Banks for a little getaway weekend, check the weather very carefully, prepped for the flight the best I could, just as we get to the Carolina coastline the sky starts turning a weird brown, very light drop in visibility but I get a little unsettled, I turn back overland and check in with flight service and get weather for several points on the Outer Banks which all checks out good, I think about it then decide to turn back toward Ocracoke, which means flying about 20 miles over water, about halfway across visibility has gone to complete crap, sky all around me is brown and I can't see a clear horizon I can barely make out the water below me, I am on course according to the GPS and I keep thinking about the clear weather reports ahead, I know I'm approaching the island, but I can still barely see the water below me from 3500 feet. I know from my prep that the highest obstacle in the area is about 500 feet so I decide to descend to 1500 feet. As soon as I cross the beach it got worse. The color of the sand below matched the brown of the sky and I started to get disoriented. It was like being wrapped in a brown cotton ball. I focused on staying on course, wings level and holding 1500 feet. But suddenly below I got a glimpse of the runway as I flew over it. I fricked up here and decided I was not going to fly away where I couldn't see the runway. I flew a tight pattern descending keeping my eyes locked on the runway and not on the instruments. I didn't realize how disoriented I was getting till I saw I was below 500 feet. I thought I was level but was in fact in a bank. I got it straightened out and reset my brain a little. Got lined up for the runway. Airspeed and attitude okay. Right at touchdown I realized that since I couldn't really make out details of the ground that my visual clues were all shot and didn't understand just how low to the runway I was. My normal sight picture was fricked. Basically I almost drove it right into the runway but fortunately recovered and make a reasonably smooth landly smooth. I had been making some radio calls but couldn't see the opposite end of the runway. Finally got parked under a completely obscured sky. When I parked I found another guy chilling next to his Cirrus. Turns out the whole area was under smoke from a peat bog fire and visibility was below limits not VFR at all but apparently flight service didn't know that. He congratulated me on my skills. Not knowing that my hands were shaking. My wife thought the whole thing was great. Wife. We. This is fun. Wheel swing 303. Internal screaming. Yes I'm a pilot and CFI. Scariest moment was when on intro flight and coming back into land. Student is doing super well everything cool. We were clear to land. Number 1. From 4 miles out. On short finals. Less than a mile out. Another plane appears over to top of us and lands on our runway. Trying to keep cool. I take the controls. Ask tower what's going on. Start a go around. Simultaneously sidestepping to get out of their wake. I turn to my student and say. So shall we try that again? Flew tourists and odd jobs in Phoenix for a couple years in an R44. 
going in for a landing at a remote site in the middle of the desert. Just as I was about to drop into a hover, drained my speed, I noticed just above my feet a motherfucking trike motor paraglider just cruising under me only a couple feet above the ground and maybe 5 feet under me. Very cool like. Did a 180 and told Pax I was worried about the landing spot, so I went pretty far in a different direction while watching that little bastard in my skid mirror. I quick flipped to a couple open channels to try to raise him and didn't get a reply so I'm assuming he was without a radio. Still to this day I'm wondering how in the heck did he get in behind and under me so fast when I was probably cruising at 80 miles per hour? How in the heck did he keep that thing solid under my rotawash? And why in the frick would it be a good idea to fly under a helicopter when it is about to land? A couple people I've talked to have said he probably didn't even notice me. I'm just gonna go to the grave believing some people wanna live on a razor's edge. Now I'm waiting for him to post the story about how he once really fricked up and ended up under intense rotter wash by not paying attention on a glide and ending up under a landing R44 on the one day he forgets his radio. CFI, Certified Flight Instructor, here, while teaching my student how to do a cross country, we got blindsided by two pop-up thunderstorms. There was a 20 mile wide corridor to fly down back to base, according to flight service, so we cut our trip short and headed home. Played it off cool, said this is a great time to practice diversion and good decision making but I was freaking terrified. Friend got caught in a storm in Texas. He's a CFI as well but was struggling and started communicating with a controller who was having trouble finding him and finally said oh you're the blip that isn't moving. I'm a pilot but I don't have passengers normally. A few years ago I was flying pretty high in the clouds. 36,000 feet or so, around some very high mountains, about 26,000 feet, and our GPWS, ground proximity warning system, started having an electronic seizure, too low terrain, too low gear, too low flaps, too low terrain after freaking out for a few moments, we remembered we were higher than the tallest mountains in the world let alone in the area and released the seat cushions from our butt cheeks. I then told one of the crew to pull the circuit breaker for the GPWS to turn it off. Comma after framing out for a few moments, we realized we were higher than the tallest mountains in the world. Would have been awkward if the warning system was correct and the elevation was incorrect. I'm a helicopter pilot. I was doing a tourist flight and was flying low. 50 featuring in between rock formations to impress my passengers and give them a nice time. I've done this flight multiple times, everyone always love that low pass and I usually love it too. Except this time I saw a prey bird flying higher than us right over our flight path and I was unable to diverge as I was lower than the walls around me. You have to know that most birds usually try to avoid big noisy thing flying near them. They do so by swerving left, right or down. Prey birds are also known to sometimes attack big noisy flying things by diving at them. It all went pretty fast and thankfully the bird didn't do anything stupid like throwing itself into the main rotor. We landed safely a few minutes later and my passengers went on their way without suspecting anything. I'm more careful now when I make this flight. I spent 3 years flying 44 tours on the Gulf Coast, Pelicans Man, Flying Turkeys, Clouds at 1200, Pelicans at 1199, and me at 800, one dove at me, I practically had the 44 on its side trying to get away and it still hit the main rotor. Oh I got one, when I was a teenager my dad was earning his pilot's license, 
It was the best we always got to go on lessons. We all liked his instructor and had him around for dinner often and he and my dad would make sports bets. Well instructor Chris lost and the payment was a ride with him on this twin engine just for fun. It's a clear night so we go and Chris and dad are flying. And my mom, baby sis, and I four in the back. My sister fell asleep before we even get to the runway. We take off and immediately something is very wrong. Suddenly loud bangs all over the plane like metal is hitting it and the plan pitch is crazy. My mom had a headset so I reached over and grabbed one side so I could hear. Chris is freaked out but I heard my dad say calm as frick. We fly the plane first and panic later then start radioing others we are circling back for emergency landing. At this point my mom grabs the headset back and I just sat still. They landed the plane perfectly. Turns out there was an outside compartment on the nose of the plane that was open so on takeoff it flew open and a bunch of crap hit the plane. We got out, all of us shaken, and then my lil sis pipes up. Daddy are we going to fly now we all just lost it laughing. My dad can't fly now, but I'm saving up. Next time he comes to visit, I'm going to make sure I've had a few lessons and I'll take him flying this time. Those flying lessons were some of the best moments of my childhood. I'm late to the party here, but someone might enjoy this. I'm an airline captain and on this particular day I was flying a CRJ900 into the Washington National Airport. We were on an arrival but due to VIP movement, the president, they took us off of our route with the intention of having us enter a holding pattern over East Maryland. As we were turning around on the holding pattern, think of it as a big oval with 10 mile sides. We noticed an aircraft coming down the same route we were just in, at our altitude, roughly 10,000 feet. They were 20 miles away and we only saw a blip on our screen. Keep in mind that at 10,000 feet we're doing close to 300 miles per hour. So a closing speed of 600 miles per hour. We got sight of them as we got closer and we had to turn to fly on the other side of the oval. By now we're about 5 miles away, turning towards each other closing at 600 miles per hour. So I instinctively put my hand on the Ukand autopilot disconnect button. At about 3 or 4 miles, ATC issues a traffic alert and gives me an immediate left turn and to descend. So I click it off and start hand flying. At that same moment the TCAS, traffic collision avoidance system, starts yelling, traffic, traffic, climb, climb. So I do what I'm trained to do and fly the TCAS maneuver. We probably came within 2 miles, maybe less, from colliding. Not that we would have since I saw the Southwest 737 and would have evaded had we gotten closer. And the TCAS did its thing right. So, since the TCAS told me to climb I got to 11,000 feet within a few seconds and leveled off. Then what do you know? A second airplane. TCAS starts freaking out again and telling me to descend. So I did. We explained the situation to ATC and the controller sounded extremely embarrassed and apologetic. So if the dude controlling Potomac sector where we fly the deal arrival that got us into two rows within seconds of each other is reading this, it's okay. We all have bad days. Ooh and when we were getting off some of the passengers asked what the commotion was about. The FA told them that it's because we get paid by the minute. True. And we wanted to milk the clock since we were early. In a playful manner of course. I enjoyed that. And by enjoyed. I mean my fear of flying has increased tenfold. Back in the 80s. I was in high school and went to USSR part of an exchange program. We were on a flight from a small airport in Soviet Georgia to Moscow, then home to the US. 
The flight started normally. About halfway down the runway the pilot slams on the brakes and powers the plane down. Thrown forward. Stuff flying all over the cabin kind of fast stop. As we taxi back around, the pilot, in broken English, explains that technically the airport we are using doesn't have long enough runways, but the airplane has enough power so we're going to do it anyway. We circle back on the taxiway, get back on the runway, he backs up to the point that the wings are pushing over small pine trees. He locks the brakes and runs the engines up to full ludicrous speed to the point that the aircraft is hopping up and down on the landing gear. He releases the brakes. Everyone is instantly slammed backwards into their seats and off we go. I swear he had to bank to miss a tree at the end of the runway but we made it to Moscow. When we finally flew into Atlanta, on a much larger aircraft, it was the first Aeroflar flight to ever land at Hartsfield so they decided to honor it by deploying the airport fire trucks to spray their nozzles over the plane as it taxied off the runway. Well. They forgot to mention this to the hundreds of family and friends who were waiting for us to return on a concourse they had closed to everyone but us. So they announced a gathered crowd that your family members are arriving. Watch out this window to see the plane land. Then deploy the entire airport fire department. Cops and everything with lights flashing and sirens screaming. People were freaking out and screaming and then suddenly they started. What looked like. Hosing the plane down with fire trucks. It went as you might expect. People were losing their crap. Turns out the airport had radioed the pilots and told them to expect honors after they landed but they apparently expected maybe a wine and cheese tray. Not a full on crash response. So we lurched to a stop on the taxiway. Being hosed down by fire trucks. Surrounded by police cars and such with lights and sirens on. Again, the assembled relatives and friends are reacting as expected. Not knowing this is all big show for our their benefit. On the plane. We are all looking out the windows. Flight attendants are running all around. The pilots are coming over the overhead saying, We don't show any fire. I'm not sure what's going here. But we'll just sit here until we figure what's going on. Finally Tower figures out that maybe they should have been a little more specific about the honorary welcome and the concourse staff relays to the panicked friends and relatives that the plane is not on fire. We proceed to the gate and everyone is happy. USSR LOL. Back in my flight instructor days I had a gig to take up some kids for the day who were doing an aviation camp. There were three of them ranging from 7-14 years old. We were doing a quick flight to a nearby island. Our departure airport was a towered field that I was very familiar with. On takeoff we're climbing up through 1000 or so when tower very casually tells me to use caution for another plane he cleared to take off behind me that may be overtaking me. I think the actual verbiage he used was even less urgent. Anyway, midway through his sentence I see big tail numbers in my windscreen as I'm looking at the butt end of a Cirrus airplane dead ahead, maybe less than 100 feet. I push the nose over and slow it down a bit but by then it was already over. The kid next to me just goes. Was that supposed to happen? Not really. No. But I've never had anything really go on that we tried to hide from the passengers. At least not mechanically. One time as a charter pilot we did have to hold short of the runway for like 15 minutes to burn fuel. To get within takeoff weight limits. Which is kind of embarrassing so we didn't mention it even though we ended up having to wait for quite a while haha. <laughs> Relatively low time private pilot. Me. Small plane with another pilot passenger. We filed IFR, took off and promptly flew into a small thunderstorm over North Georgia mountains. 
Water was streaming under the windshield, and we were bounced around quite vigorously with the thunder and lightning making it impossible for us to hear or talk to ATC. It lasted maybe 2-3 minutes and turned out fine, but that day I learned how stupid I can be. I'd recommend a book by the title of Fate is the Hunter by Ernest Kagan, especially as a fellow novice pilot. The first time I flew a plane, I nearly crashed into a helicopter I went heli-skiing on the day before. For some reason they only operate on their own frequency so we didn't know they were there, and they didn't know we were there. The flight instructor took over and it ended up being fine. Quite a shock though. Passenger and pilot here, you'll be amazed how much your brain explodes when you're in a nosedive where your only option is to pull up but you're gaining incredible amounts of speed and your G tolerances can only go so high. Started to grey out but got it under control. Had I not strained hard enough I would have just passed out and plummeted 7000 featuring. Scared the crap out of myself. In flight school, for King Airs, my instructor pilot was like I'm gonna demonstrate a full engine shutdown. Well the engine shut down fine. When he went to restart it, it did not restart. So we declared an emergency and he landed it. Crash rescue was there waiting for us and everything. It was kinda cool in hindsight seeing how ATC treats you when you have a real world emergency. A lot of other oh crap moments both in the C12 and the R72. But mostly because I had no idea how to fly and little things that aren't a big deal seem like a big deal. I think if I was in a plane with a dead engine I would crap myself. Not a pilot, but was on board a helicopter, as a marine, when this happened. We were coming back to the ship super late, pitch black. We'd been humping around the jungle for weeks leading up to this. Most of us were sleeping when all of a sudden I feel the aircraft nose up violently before leveling off and crashing to the deck in what felt like a 1 second span. I swear, out of the 30 of us non-flight crew, I was the only one that noticed anything amiss. For days everyone was telling me I must have dreamt that we all almost died. Eventually I said something to one of the flight crew about it and he was all oh crap. You didn't hear apparently the pilot just kinda zoned out as we were landing. At the last second he realized we were coming in too fast, jerked back on the stick to slow us down, and landed a lot harder than we should have. Barely avoided a tail strike. He had played it off like everything was normal and the rest of the crew just went along with it in the moment. But they record everything on the ship, so within a day the pilot had to explain himself. For some reason they only spoke to the flight crew. Not any of the 30 plus marines who were also on the helicopter, but even if they had, none of them would have even known anything was up. I felt like I was taking crazy pills. Not a pilot but a dispatcher. Back when I was working with private jets, we had a customer request a trip from somewhere up north, Detroit I think, to Florida. The crew is waiting for them prior to the flight and their car and driver shows up and starts unloading them on the ramp. The crew takes all the bags and starts loading them into the cargo area of the plane. They also have dogs in carriers so they take them and put them inside with the passengers. Everything up to this point is normal. They take off and start heading down south. About 20 minutes into the flight, the passengers realize they only have two dog carriers with them and that they are missing their third dog. They immediately start panicking and ask the crew if they put them in the unpressurized cargo. You start to doubt yourself whenever someone asks you about something like that because no matter how sure you are that you didn't, there's always that thought in that back of your head that you are going to land with a dead frozen dog in the back. 
Anyway the pilots give me a call and let me know the situation asking for a place to divert to. I give it to them and immediately start making calls. I call over to the FBO where they departed from and ask them if they saw any dog crate left behind. CSR up front says they haven't seen anything so she transfers me out to a line guy. Once again they haven't seen anything either. So at this point I'm 90% positive that there is a dead dog on board and about 10% sure these people never knew how many dogs they had in the first place. Well they end up landing and run out to check the back. They open it up and throw everything out of there and what do they find? Nothing. There's no dog in the back. And there's no dog at the airport they left from. We genuinely have no idea what's happening until the passengers make a call to the car and driver service only to find out the dog has been in the back seats the whole time and he didn't notice. Well passengers don't seem to bother at this point. They tell him to take the dog back to their house and they continue on without it. So your passengers fricked up and freaked out but it was all for nothing. I will say you get plenty of stories like this when you work with private jets. I've got a lot more however a lot deal with celebrities and I'm not quite at liberty to discuss those. Oh man. PM me some of those. No names. I do AOG support for a bunch of the fractionals. And would love to hear some of the stories. Not commercial. But hobby flyer. I was out with a couple of mates on a nice day and we decided to all go out. I don't have my pilot's license but a mate offered to let me take over. Anyway we're flying at a medium kinder altitude when out of the corner of my eye I noticed our altitude dropped significantly. My heart leaps into my throat and I panicked. My friends didn't notice. I started remembering things in my life. My first bike ride. My dad walking in on me shoving a chessboard in my butt and telling me we got a new puppy. My first love. I told my friend. A more experienced pilot who politely told me that the dial was broken and the altitude was fine. I was on a flight once that was trying to land in very high winds. We were just about to touch down. Like probably less than 50 feet from the ground when the plane suddenly dipped hard to the left and the pilot pulled up. We circled for a minute and he made another pass. I gave him a fist bump and told him nice landing on the way out. I watched a 737 land in heavy crosswinds once. It approached the runway flying parallel to it but oriented at 45 degrees so it looked like it was sliding along it. As it got to within 5 meters above the tarmac, the pilot whipped the tail in line and dropped onto the runway. Impressive flying to be sure, but so glad I wasn't on that plane. Attitude indicator fricking rolled over and died. It was VMC so it wasn't a hazard. But it certainly was interesting as a new pilot to look down and see her instrument claim that I was in an inverted dive towards the ground. Just squaked it when I landed but my passenger, a girl I was in vain trying to impress, thankfully didn't notice. I had the opposite experience. A good friend is an experienced private pilot with his own plane. He came out to visit me in the SF Bay area. He begged me to let him take up up. So we rented a plane and he did a tour of the bay, a loop around it, CCW, on the way back, passing through the SF airport airspace and then Palo Alto airspace, there was a lot of radio traffic and handing off of our plane to different frequencies, but the radios in the rental plane were not cooperating, my friend turned off my mic so he could concentrate with the ATC and did circles while trying to get permission to proceed, I saw another small plane pass within 50 yards of us. I was shouting into the mic asking him if he saw the plane approaching, but to no avail. When we landed I asked him about that small plane. 
What small plane he was so focused on the radio he didn't even notice it. I never went up with him again. Freaking heck. Flying a Cessna 310. Autopilot is non-operational so it wasn't part of my pre-landing check. First time I had a full plane of 5 passengers. On final to land. Everything nice and trimmed. All of sudden flight controls lock up. My mind starts racing aboard landing and try to troubleshoot or try to land. Plane is set up to land and I decide if I do a go around there's no telling what's going to happen. So I decide to land. With all my might I was able to get some control back and flare. Plane lands hard. Everyone's fine and no one has a clue as to what just happened. So as I'm taxing and I noticed my passenger's knee hit the autopilot switch which the servos were set to high which is why I could barely control the plane. Come to find out mechanic was messing with the system and left the breakers on. Plus I was a dumb butt for not checking even if autopilot was non-op. Instrument training student here, was doing a solo night flight, pattern work, working on takeoffs and landings, and I had done a few laps, everything going fine. A little over an hour into the flight I was taking off once again when I looked down to turn off my landing light as I no longer needed it. Mind you I'm only a few hundred feet above the ground, and in my peripheral vision everything got really bright. I look up and there are another plane roughly 200 feet away from me flying right freaking in front of the departure end of the runway, not making calls, unknown to the tower as he never announced his position or intentions, you can't do this, obviously I didn't die but I called my family after I landed and let them know how much I love them. If you are new to the channel, you can subscribe, I publish new videos every day, until then, check another video. Bye for now.